Hello everyone, my name is Nicholas Hoskins, host of the 5th annual live stream for The Cure. This year, podcast partners and content creators from all over the world will join me from May 19th to the 23rd to try to raise $15,000 for the Cancer Research Institute. Each year, I am reminded time and again of the incredible power and compassion of the indie creators, audiences, and podcasters who set aside their time, energy, and money to make this event a success. I am overwhelmed again this year with an outpouring of support and passion from others who are dedicated to the goal of a future immune to cancer. And wanted to take a moment while you're listening to this show and say, thank you. Thank you, and I'm so eternally grateful for you. I like to say together, we can make a difference. And because of you, we have. From the bottom of my heart and from the entire team that makes Livestream for the Cure possible, thank you. To learn more about this year's event, please visit LivestreamForTheCure.com. Warning. The following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On this episode of The Jury Room, it's Casey Anthony, Part 2. When we left the last episode, Casey was just about to confess to her parents and brother that her two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, had been missing for 31 days while she was off clubbing, stealing, and lying. From the outside, the Anthony home didn't look like it held any secrets. The quaint blush pink home sits on a neatly trimmed lawn decorated with a few tall palm trees. In the backyard, a swimming pool gleams in the light of the Florida sun. At first glance, the home blends in with the rest of the neighborhood. Calm, quiet, normal. If you were to enter the home on the afternoon of July 15th, 2008, though calm is the last thing you would find. It had been a month since 22-year-old Casey Anthony had seen her mother Cindy and weeks since she had seen her father, George. When she finally stepped foot inside the house, with no baby in her arms, she was about to face a reckoning. Her parents were reeling. George had just discovered that Casey's car had been sitting in a tow lot for two weeks. When he went to pick it up, he found that it reeked of something foul, a stench like death. George had spent majority of his career as a police officer, and he had dealt with dead, decomposing bodies before. To him, the smell was unmistakable. When he opened the trunk, he found a garbage bag filled with trash and rotting pizza. It was disgusting, but it didn't explain the smell. Rotting pizza and decomposing flesh don't exactly share the same scent. Now, he was determined to see his granddaughter once and for all, to prove his fears and suspicion wrong. Casey, on the other hand, entered the home, ready to spew more lies. When her parents asked her where Kaylee was, she told them that she was out with Zanny the nanny a babysitter that Casey and Kaylee supposedly lived with, who Cindy and George had never even met. Cindy, frustrated and exhausted by her daughter's excuses, decided she needed to teach her a lesson. She did not believe yet that anything terrible had happened to her granddaughter. She simply thought Casey was acting out keeping Kaylee away from her for some petty reason. 
So in an attempt to teach Casey that actions have consequences, Cindy Anthony made her first 911 call of the day. Casey's Pontiac Sunfire, the car that was found at the tow lot, actually belonged to George and Cindy. So Cindy decided to report the vehicle stolen. Cindy may have thought that a 911 call would shake Casey up enough to give up the act. She'd learn a valuable lesson about consequences and decide to let her parents visit with her daughter again. It was a last ditch effort by a desperate mother who didn't know how else to handle her adult daughter's strange and unruly behavior. In the call, Cindy sounds stoic and calm. She tells the 911 dispatcher that Casey stole her car and she would like her to be arrested. The dispatcher, who seems a little confused, asks if Casey is a relative and if the vehicle has been returned. Cindy answers yes to both questions and the dispatcher says she'll send a deputy when one becomes available. It's obvious the police are in no hurry to respond to this call, which is clearly a non-violent domestic dispute. For the next two hours, there was no sign of the police. George and Cindy were pressing Casey for answers about their granddaughter's whereabouts but they just couldn't get her to give them any concrete information. Finally, George called Casey's brother Lee to come over and help them. Now, Casey was being questioned by her mother Cindy, father George, and brother Lee. Even in the face of that high-level pressure, Casey still refused to relent and tell the truth about her daughter. The tension in the Anthony household continued to rise until Casey marched off in a huff and locked herself in her bedroom. By that time, Cindy was starting to put the pieces together. She knew that there was something her daughter wasn't telling her, and she was tired of waiting for Casey to fess up. So, two hours after placing the first 911 call, Cindy called the police again. This time, she wanted to report a missing child. In the second 911 call, Cindy doesn't sound totally frantic or bewildered, like one might expect. It's likely that she was still in some form of denial, believing that Casey was simply keeping Kaylee from her. Not that little Kaylee was in any actual danger. While she sounds less stoic in this call than in the first one, and more frustrated, she's still relatively calm and collected as she speaks to the dispatcher. Here's the call. Okay, what's happening? Um... I have someone here that I need to um, be arrested in my home. They're and there right I now? I have a possible missing child. I have a three-year-old that's been missing for a month. A three-year-old? Yes. Have you reported that? I'm trying to do that now, ma'am. Okay, what did the person do that you need arrested? My daughter. For what? For stealing an auto and stealing money. I already spoke with someone. They said they would patch me through the Orlando um, Sheriff's Department have a deputy here. I was in the car. I was going to drive her to the police station. And no one's open. They said they would bring a deputy to my home when I got home to call them. It's quite possible that Cindy didn't really believe that Kaylee was missing at this point, but simply wanted to push Casey into telling the truth once and for all. When this second call still didn't shake any information from Casey, Cindy was left feeling helpless, frustrated, and even afraid. She and George left the room to collect themselves, and Lee was left to talk to his sister alone. 
Lee was quite a bit calmer in his approach with Casey. Rather than overwhelming her with an intense line of questioning, he gently tried to push for answers, likely feeling safer in his presence than she did with her parents. Casey finally let her guard down. She confided that Cindy had told her multiple times that Kaylee was Casey's biggest and best mistake. Lee saw this as Casey's attempt to deflect the conversation. She was focusing on her strained relationship with her mother. Instead of telling Lee where her daughter was, it was then that Lee decided to change tactics. Rather than asking point blank where little Kaylee was, he offered to go pick her up from Zanny the nanny's house and bring her back home. Finally, with no way out, Casey admitted that two-year-old Kaylee had been missing for a month. She told her brother that the last time she saw Kaylee was when she dropped her off at Zanny's house on the way to work 31 days ago. When she arrived to pick her daughter up, no one was home. She hadn't seen Kaylee since. Lee, horrified by this revelation, asked Casey why she hadn't told anyone or searched for her daughter. Casey claimed that she had searched for her, that she had been going around to different clubs and bars where she thought Zanny might be. When her brother pressed even further, Casey told him that she knew for a fact that Kaylee was safe. In fact, she claimed she had spoken to little Kaylee on the phone that very day. The girl had called from an undisclosed number, and they talked for about a minute before Casey asked to speak to an adult. At that point, the line disconnected. Casey's confession was like a bomb drop. George, Lee, and Cindy fell into a panic. Cindy made her third and final 911 call of the day. This time, she sounds like a devastated grandmother, terrified for her missing granddaughter. Here's the call. 
My daughter's been missing for the last 31 days. And you know who has her? I know who has her. I've tried to contact her. I actually received a phone call today now from a number that is no longer in service. I did get to speak to my daughter for about a moment, about a minute. Okay, she did you guys pregnant. call and report a vehicle stolen? Um, yes, my mom did. Okay, okay so there's been a vehicle stolen too? No, this was my vehicle. What vehicle was stolen? Um, it's a 98 Pontiac Sunfire. Okay, I have deputies on the way to you right now for that. But now you're now you're three old okay, your three old daughter's missing. Kaylee Anthony. Yes. White Kaylee female. Anthony. Yes, white female. Three years old, eight nine, two thousand five, her date of birth. Yes. And you last saw her a month ago? Thirty one days. Some thirty one days. Who has her? Do you have do you have a name? Her name is Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez. Who is that? Babysitter? She's She's been my nanny for about a year and a half, almost two years. And why Why are you calling now? Why didn't you call 31 days ago? I've been looking for her and have gone through other resources to try to find her, which is stupid. After the third call, things got real for Casey Anthony. Her month of carefree living ended as quickly as it came, and it was time to search for her missing daughter. As she waited for the police to arrive, she sent a text message to her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro. You would think Casey would spend these first crucial minutes doing whatever she could to help track down her own daughter. She might get a team of friends together to aid in the search, to give her family any important information or to even try to track down the phone number Kaylee had called from that day. Instead of worrying about finding her daughter, though, Casey was worried about going to jail. She texted Tony Lazaro, I am the worst person in the world. If they don't find her, guess who gets to spend an eternity in jail? Casey spent the following day weaving through a web of lies for the police to get trapped in. Again, you would think that a worried mother might give the police all the information she possibly could so they could have the best possible chance of finding her daughter. Instead, she led them on a time-sucking wild goose chase that wasted valuable time, money, and resources during the search. First, she told police that Zanny the Nanny was the cute nickname she used for Kaylee's babysitter, whose real name was Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez. She claimed to have met Zenaida through her ex-boyfriend, Jeff Hopkins. Zenaida, she said, used to babysit Jeff's son, Zachary. Casey would sometimes drop Kaylee off at Jeff's house on her way to work and Zenaida would watch both children. After Jeff moved away, Zenaida began exclusively watching Kaylee and had been babysitting for her for quite some time now. When investigating this story, the police tracked down Jeff Hopkins and questioned him. Jeff said that he met Casey back in high school, but that he barely even knew her. The most that they had spoken in years was when Casey sent him invites to Friday nights at Fusion Ultra, which she sent in mass email change to multiple people at once. They had certainly never dated. Further, Jeff Hopkins had not only never heard of anyone named Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez, but that he didn't even have a kid. Zachary was completely made up was Zanny. After telling the police about Jeff Hopkins and Zanny the nanny, the police asked if Casey could take them to Zanny's apartment. She happily obliged and drove them to the Sawgrass Apartments nearby, where she claimed Zanny lived, and where she said she last saw her daughter. She provided the police with an apartment number and took the time to describe the place in great detail. 
When the police went to check the apartment out, though, they discovered. And now, for a quick break. Hello, friends and neighbors. I am your friendly death investigator, host of the podcast Autopsy. Autopsy is a show where we take real autopsy reports from popular cases and some not so popular and break down the information discovered by pathologists and how it all led to their final determined cause and manner of death. Think of us as an addendum to many true crime podcasts you may already be a listener of. Every month we release a new episode and then a more informal discussion episode follows halfway through the month. We are available on virtually every platform, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and even YouTube. So check us out. Now, back to your regularly scheduled program. That the unit was vacant and had been for months. There was no record of anyone named Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez living there ever. The police also discovered that Casey was lying about her job. She told them like she told her parents, that she worked as an event planner at Universal Studios. They discovered pretty quickly that this was a lie. But rather than revealing that they knew this, they had Casey take them to Universal Studios and show them where she worked. The police likely did this for a number of reasons. For one thing, they were probably genuinely curious how far Casey was willing to go in her lies. More importantly though, they likely hoped if under real pressure, when Casey had no choice but to admit she was lying, she might confess to knowing where her daughter was too. Remarkably, Casey agreed to giving the officers a tour of her completely fictional office space. When they arrived at Universal Studios though, the receptionist could not find Casey Anthony's name in the database and refused to let her pass the front desk. Casey argued that there must be some terrible mistake. She gave them the supposed name of her supervisor, but the receptionist couldn't find that name either. Finally, the police asked to speak to the manager who let the group inside. Once inside, Casey still pretended that she knew the place intimately. She took the police onto an elevator, hit a random floor, and said this was the floor that she worked on. Then, she walked the officers down the hall, and even went as far to wave and say hello to anybody walking by, as though she actually knew them. Casey walked and walked, supposedly guiding the officers to her office, until she eventually hit a dead end. With nowhere else to turn, she finally admitted that she didn't actually work there. At that point, Casey was arrested for lying to the police and taken into custody, where she was brought in for questioning. In the meantime, a group of investigators were sent to examine Casey's car. Inside the trunk, they find nine human hairs, the same color as little Kaylee's, but also as Casey and Cindy. These hairs, however, were found to never have been treated with hair dye, unlike Cindy and Casey's. One of the hairs had a dark black ring around the root, which only appears on the hairs of decomposing bodies. They sent their findings into a lab. The investigators also brought two cadaver dogs with them, Cadaver dogs are highly trained from puppyhood to locate the smell of dead bodies and can actually track that scent for months after a body is moved. Cadaver dogs are so good at what they do that they cost between $700 and $1,000 per hour. In short, they get results. The cadaver dogs signal to the police that they detected decomposition in the car. When taken to the Anthony home, they signaled once again. This time, they alerted to the scent of a body near Kaylee's playhouse in the backyard. Around the same time, 
police actually do locate a woman named Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez living in Florida. It appears, though, that this was just an extremely bizarre coincidence. When questioned, Fernandez Gonzalez said she had never even heard of anyone named Casey Anthony and had never even worked as a nanny in her life. Fernandez Gonzalez eventually sued Casey Anthony for defamation after her life was completely disrupted and even put at risk for being associated with a kidnapper. While the police banded together to find Kaylee, Casey continued to lie to them. During her interrogation, she barely sounds upset, worried, or even scared. Sometimes, she sounds a little irritated, especially when the police accuse her of lying. But for the most part, she's calm, cool, and collected. During the interrogation, the police give Casey a list of all the lies she's told them so far. Even when confronted with her own lies, she refuses to admit them until she is absolutely given no choice. She changes her story multiple times. She tells the police that when she arrived at Zanny's apartment after work and found her daughter missing, she sat on the stairs for a few hours waiting for them. Then, when they didn't show up, she wandered around the neighborhood to various parks, stores, and restaurants where she knew Zanny frequented. She didn't call the police because she was afraid that if she did, Zanny would hurt Kaylee. During Casey's first night in prison, she called her home in an attempt to get her boyfriend Tony Lazaro's phone number. When she spoke with her family, they were extremely worried and pressed Casey for any information she might have about Kaylee's disappearance. Casey was irritated at the questioning, and instead of giving any answers, she complained that her family was bothering her and demanded her boyfriend's phone number. Instead, Casey's brother Lee handed the phone to a family friend, Catherine, who Casey made it clear she had no interest in talking to. While speaking to Casey, Catherine sounded terrified. Through tears, she said, Casey, you have to tell me if you know anything about Kaylee. Sweetheart, if anything happens to Kaylee, Casey, I'll die. You understand? I'll die. If anything happens to that baby. Rather than being appreciative of her friend's genuine concern, Casey reacted with anger and annoyance. She shot back. Oh my god, calling you guys? Waste. Huge waste. Honey, I love you. You know I would not let anything happen to my daughter. If I knew where she was, this wouldn't be going on. Finally, Casey managed to get Tony's number and ended the call with her family. While Casey Anthony sat behind bars, the police released an official statement declaring two-year-old Kaylee Anthony missing. They even offered a $225,000 reward for finding the little girl. A media frenzy ensued. Casey Anthony was soon on the cover of every magazine in the checkout aisle. She headlined evening news across the country night after night. Press surrounded the Anthony house in masses, and George and Cindy got in multiple arguments with them. Cindy also retracted her statement in the 911 call in which she said it smelt like a dead body had been in Casey's car. Cindy claimed that this was just an expression, and she didn't mean it literally. Throughout this whole process, Cindy's support of her daughter does not waver, and she is clearly willing to get behind the lies her daughter is telling. In Florida, there is a law known as the Sunshine Law that requires all non-confidential police records to be released to the public. This means that anyone could get their hands on whatever they wanted when it came to the Casey Anthony case. And this was a high-dollar case for paparazzi and media outlets. Soon, 
The public was scrutinizing every movement Casey Anthony made. Every word she said, every person she spent time with, in those 31 days between Kaylee's disappearance and being reported missing, Casey became known around the country as the world's worst mother. As photographs of her partying at Fusion Ultra and surveillance of her heading to Blockbuster with her boyfriend the night her daughter vanished went viral, Casey Anthony became a household name. A team of nearly 42,000 volunteers joined together to find Kaylee. But they found nothing, even after weeks of searching. It's important to note that the weather in Florida during this time, not only is it extremely hot and humid, but the year saw extremely heavy amounts of rainfall. Searchers were told not to look as deeply in wet and watery areas because they could be exposed to toxins in the water. We'll get back to that later. It's not long before Casey is officially named as a person of interest in the case. She hired a lawyer named Jose Baez. Baez was a young and relatively inexperienced lawyer at the time who had only tried five other murder cases in his career and none as high profile as Casey Anthony's. He had a reputation for being particularly aggressive in the courtroom, relishing any time he got in the spotlight, favoring speaking in courtroom to behind the scenes research or investigating. He particularly loved talking to the jury and was skilled at how to address them in a compelling interesting and even entertaining way this skill would ultimately help his case in casey anthony's trial in addition to baez anthony hired a bail bondsman bounty hunter named leonard padilla padilla hoped to find kaylee so he could get his hands on that two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollar reward he believed that he could get Casey to tell him where her daughter was located, so he paid her bail. Casey was officially released from prison, albeit with an ankle monitor so she couldn't make a run for it. Casey was only home for a few weeks before she was arrested again, this time for stealing the $600 from her friend Amy which we discussed in the last episode. By the time of her second arrest, she still hadn't revealed any information that would help in the search for her daughter. On August 11th, just under two months after little Kaylee was last seen, a meter reader named Roy Kronk was working in the Anthony's neighborhood when he stopped in a small cluster of trees to go to the bathroom. While there, he noticed this suspicious-looking trash bag. Knowing that he was just minutes away from the Anthony home, he became suspicious and called the Kaylee Anthony tip line, as well as the police. The police sent a deputy to look at the findings, but the deputy simply glanced around and left. He didn't see anything. Around this time, the forensic evidence from Casey Anthony's car came back from the labs. Dr. Voss, the decomposition expert who led the testing, found that there were chemicals in the car that would have been omitted from a decomposing body. He also found an abnormal amount of chloroform in the trunk of the car. While it is normal for a car to have some chloroform in it, Voss found that the amount in Casey Anthony's trunk was far above the natural amount expected. They also found definitively that the strands of hair located in the car belonged to Kaylee, Casey, or Cindy. Because they were untreated, Dr. Voss concluded that they were most likely Kaylee's, although he could not say for a definite fact. On October 14th, 2008, Casey was charged with first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, aggravated manslaughter of a child, 
and providing false information to the police. It was bold for the prosecution to place murder charges on Casey Anthony before a body had been discovered. And some believe that the prosecution botched the case from the very beginning. The prosecution also called for the death penalty, another possible mistake on their part. Besides the small bits of evidence found in Casey's car, the rest of the evidence was purely circumstantial. The death penalty puts an enormous amount of pressure on jurors to get the verdict right. Jurors do not want to put anyone on death row if there is even a shred of doubt about their guilt. After the case, some jurors actually said they believed Casey Anthony was guilty, but there was simply not enough evidence to put her on death row. And now, for a quick break. Hey, I'm Karen. And I'm Aubrey. And this is Chicklet, a literature comedy podcast where we enjoy getting lit and talking about books that spoke to us as young adults. Yeah, Book It was um, dope as fuck. Yeah, I did used to get it. the little personal pan pizza. Yes! For, oh my god. Just for you. Yeah, shit... nobody can take that shit, dog. <laughs> but we also cover movies with special guests, and it can get pretty crazy. I'll make a controversial statement. I will take this over Space Jam. Is that controversial? It People love Space be. Jam. We might have to we might have to stage a fight. So if you enjoy YA fiction, that fool of a fairy Lucinda did not intend to lay a curse on me. She meant to bestow a gift. Boozy beverages. Little shot of Baileys in your coffee. Coffee, pizza, and Baileys goes together like doesn't go together. Like it doesn't go together at all. And, and the power of friendship. I'll be like, I bought your Christmas present. And she'll be like, what'd you get me? I have to know. <laughs> Tell me right and now. And I'm like, Henry no. gets so irritated because I'm like, do you want your present now? And he's like, it's like October. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. Then we're the podcast for you. We've been best friends for over a decade. So join in on the fun and grab a drink, y'all. January 6th at 1.15 p.m., the day that Dry January died. Now... Back to the show. Casey was still awaiting trial when on December 11th, 2018, meter reader Roy Kronk returned again to the cluster of woods near Casey Anthony's house. There, he found that trash bag that he had reported was still in the woods, but this time, the scene was much more horrifying. A human skull had been pulled from the bag by animals in the months since it had been lying there. To double-check his findings, Krunk used the stick to lift up the skull through an eye socket, which ended up being a grave mistake. This move ultimately led to a character assassination of Krunk in court, during which the defense argued that Krunk had actually moved the body to the clearing by the Anthony house hoping for a massive payday and fame for finding it so nearby. The scientific evidence, however, proved that this could not be the case. The skeleton had been sitting in that exact spot for so long that the vegetation was actually growing inside of it. And so, the remains of little Kaylee Anthony were found at last, crushing any hope that she still might be out there, just waiting to be found and brought home safe. Her body had been sitting so long beneath the hot Florida sun that it sped up decomposition. By December, all that remained was a skeleton, which made it impossible to determine an actual cause of death. There was no signs of trauma found on the skeleton. On the skull, Three pieces of duct tape were found that seemed to be holding the mandible in place. It looks as though the duct tape was used to cover the nose and mouth of the child. Because it had been sitting outside for so long, no fingerprints or DNA were found on the duct tape. Although they did find that the same brand of duct tape was inside the Anthony's home. On the front of the duct tape, investigators found leftover adhesive from a heart-shaped sticker. 
the duct tape was the most damning evidence found at the scene. The prosecution argued that it was used to suffocate Kaylee, but the defense argued that it was used to tape the bag shut and had just attached onto the skull by mistake. Unfortunately, there was no definitive way to prove either argument. Remember earlier when I had mentioned the weather? Many people wondered why it took so long for Kaylee's body to be discovered when it was found so close to the house, just a half a mile away. In early June, when Kaylee's body would have most likely been placed there, the ground was wet and watery, so searchers were told to refrain from looking deeply inside of it. By the time Kronk arrived, that area had dried up in the summer heat. Around a month after Kaylee's body was found, George Anthony attempted suicide. He was found in a hotel in Daytona Beach, Florida, after Cindy discovered that George was missing, along with several bottles of medication and alcohol. When police found him, he had nearly overdosed on a combination of prescription drugs and alcohol. There was a five-page suicide note found with him. George was found before he died, and after some time in the hospital, he made a full recovery. In the suicide note, George expressed deep sadness over the loss of his granddaughter and anger at the people who did this to her. He implies that Casey's group of friends might have been involved, likely still not ready to place the blame entirely on his daughter. While some believe the note implies guilt, I see it as the sad ramblings of a person deep in pain and grief. I do not find the note incriminating. I will include the note in the description of this episode, so you can decide for yourself what you believe. During the trial, the defense used George Anthony's suicide attempt as a way to point blame at him for Kaylee's murder. In fact, it aligned pretty well with the story that Baez gave during his opening statement. Baez claimed that Kaylee drowned by accident in the family pool before being discovered by George and Casey. A hysterical George then dumped Kaylee's body in the wood and told Casey that if anyone knew she let this happen to her little girl, she would go to prison for the rest of her life. Now, there are a few problems with this story. For one thing, George was a cop for the majority of his career and cops know that accidental deaths like drowning would not land a parent in prison for the rest of their life. Cops also know that tampering with evidence and hiding a body would send a person to prison for the rest of their life. After the trial, a private investigator that was working with Casey's legal team claimed that he had made the pool story up during a brainstorming session with Anthony and Baez. He thought of it after examining the Anthony home and noticing that the pool ladder had been left up. In the same opening statement, Baez said that George Anthony had been sexually assaulting Casey Anthony since she was eight years old. Years of sexual abuse at the hands of her father was the reason she grew up to be a compulsive liar. She had grown so used to covering things up to protect herself. Interestingly, Bias never brought up this damning accusation again during the entire trial. He never questioned a single witness about it, never provided any proof whatsoever. He planted the idea in the jury's head and then never brought it up again. For Bias, it didn't matter if he was telling the truth. That wasn't his job. That was the job of the prosecution. Baez's job was to place reasonable doubt into the heads of the jurors. If the jurors had any reason whatsoever to doubt Anthony's guilt, if there was a single other possibility of what might have happened to little Kaylee, then they could not hand down a guilty verdict. 
The prosecution, on the other hand, argued that Anthony had been making chloroform in her own home in order to knock Kaylee out so she could go to parties. The prosecution said that Anthony would dip a rag in the chemical before holding it over Kaylee's mouth and nose until she fell asleep. They based this argument on two things. The first, the buildup of chloroform found in the car. The second was that investigators found multiple searches for chloroform on the Anthony computer. Now, this argument was not most believable either. Chloroform is not a chemical that can be easily concocted at home, especially by someone like Casey who has no scientific experience. It was hard for the jury to buy that she could have made the substance on her own. Now, both Tony Lazaro and Casey's brother Lee reported that Kaylee used to sleep for 14 hours at a time and wake up with dark circles under her eyes. This is not normal for a toddler. At the same time, it was widely known that Casey used Xanax somewhat regularly, especially when partying with friends. Many followers of the Casey Anthony case believe that Casey actually used to give Kaylee Xanax to make her sleep for long periods of time so she could go out and be with friends. Some even think this is where Zanny the Nanny came from. One theory is that Casey Anthony gave Kaylee too much Xanax by accident and the little girl overdosed and died. Another theory is that she gave the girl Xanax on purpose so she could be asleep while she suffocated and killed her daughter using chloroform. Neither of these theories were ever brought up in court. After weeks of trial, the jury deliberated and found a verdict in the Casey Anthony trial. They found Anthony not guilty of first degree murder not guilty of aggravated child abuse and not guilty of aggravated manslaughter of a child. They did find her guilty of lying to the police and she was sentenced to four years for that crime. However, she had already served three years while awaiting her trial and she got time off for good behavior. So just a few weeks after the trial ended, Casey Anthony was released from prison. Now, one key piece of information was not discovered or released until after the trial. It turned out that while the prosecution had searched the Anthony's computer, they only checked the history of one internet browser, Internet Explorer. Casey used Firefox. Investigators searching Anthony's computer after the trial searched her Firefox browser and found a search mode for foolproof suffocation the day that Kaylee Anthony disappeared. Some believe that this information would have changed the outcome of the trial. As it turned out, Bias actually knew about the internet search. He had hired his own team of investigators to search the computer during the trial and they did search Firefox, and they did find that foolproof suffocation search. Bias even said that he didn't have a solid argument for that piece of evidence, and he had been expecting that to nab him in court. It also came out that Casey Anthony may have been paying her legal fees through sexual favors with Bias. One member of Baez's legal team claimed that he once saw Casey Anthony running from Baez's apartment, only partially dressed and giggling. Another time, canceling a press conference on behalf of Casey, he overheard Baez tell Casey she owes him three BJs for that. Now, these claims have never been backed up by any other sources. Today, Casey is estranged from her parents. Cindy still believes that her daughter is innocent. George believes that Casey was involved. 
but that she had help. As of 2017, Casey Anthony was living in South Florida with a private detective who worked on her legal team. She is currently working on a book about her life and losing her daughter. In a 2017 interview with the Associated Press, she said, I don't give a shit about what anybody thinks about me. I never will. I'm okay with myself. I sleep pretty good at night. I'm okay with myself. I sleep pretty good at night. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been The Jury Room. Thank you for listening to this two-part series on Casey Anthony. But I want to take the focus away from from Casey Anthony and put it on Kaylee. She was a beautiful, bright star that dwindled too soon. She didn't deserve what she was given. There are a lot of a lot of parents out there who are not or cannot be parents that would have loved that little girl to the end of time. You did not deserve Kaylee Anthony. You are human trash. But I'd like to take a moment of silence now in remembrance of Kaylee Anthony. Don't forget to join me next week when it's finally the conclusion to this two-part series in the jury room aftermath where I'm joined by Lacey from the We Are All Screwed podcast. Stay safe and thanks for listening.